This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Protecting the players from that player. The Conic Sections Rebellion. Pope John the Twentieth And Eternals. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And everyone in the Gaming Hut is excited to play the game... They're just not all excited to play the same game because there is that one player. And I think we all know who we're talking about, <laughs> often referred to as the Scooby. There is an argument that it is a necessary ingredient in a gaming group to keep things from being too staid and mechanical. But in the moment, every now and again, that player does a thing and the other players say, well, I guess that's it for the dungeon today. And uh, since I have mentioned that it is an ongoing problem that every game group has that player, perhaps, Robin, we should turn our heads to an ongoing solution or at least Band-Aid for it, right? Yes. And <laughs> it's so, going to keep uh, happening. Right. And up top, I want to specify that the Scooby is just as often, if not more so, a Wolverine. Yeah. So this arises <laughs> from our discussion a couple episodes ago about the bend toward the picaresque, how often that bend is bent by one player in particular. But there are all sorts of other examples other than just a player doing something kind of wacky and goofy. When a Scooby does something sort of unilateral, that's often kind of goofy and kind of self-contained. But I think often the player, the one player who has a strong motivation to do everything, something that the rest of the group doesn't want them to do, is just as often someone playing the Wolverine character, the, the lone sort of sociopath who happens to be part of a group, or uh, just someone who in some other way is following their personal desire. Often this is a player who's uh, working out something of their own uh, and uh, the play has an element of psychodrama to it and they strongly want to do every, something that they either know the rest of the group doesn't want to do because they can intuit it or because they've all talked about it. And so I think even more so than the I'll make friends with the Noel or I'll, I'll wake him up by throwing him off the roof, there's also the I kill the prisoner, mm -hmm. right? So what we're talking here is a unilateral move on a part of a player where everybody else says, oh, and it takes the story, not not just that they have the little comeuppance or whatever, but it's something that's going to take the whole story in a direction that the bulk of the table doesn't want to go. And so the first classic solution to that is nothing. You let the chips fall where they may. That's the old schooliest thing. It's like we have rules, we have characters, 
Uh, he followed the rules in order to kill the prisoner or to, uh, you know, break the peace with the Chalarians. And uh, he was able to do it. He arranged things so he could do it. He went to some effort to make that happen. And he did. We've all got to live with it. And that's still a thing you can do. And in what circumstances can would you do that? Most classic of things, nothing. I mean, for my group, generally, that's what I do. We operate on the assumption that everyone at the table knows the story, that they know the score, they know why they're here. If a player does something that bends the narrative, that's a choice that they made. And I sort of rely on the players to decide how much of that they want in a game. And it, and it varies game by game. In Nobilis, where every player has their own sort of, you know, super-powered raison d'etre, there's a lot of individual action that is orthogonal to the main narrative, and that's sort of the point of it. In other games, where you're meant to be more of a team, it's a little more annoying to, to see that happen. In a vampire game, I would imagine that it's almost required for people to go off and kill people that they thought you weren't going to kill that day. So I, I think it varies table by table and game by game, but it certainly on my Monday group, which has been playing with me for decades now, yeah, if they do something dumb, that's on them. Let's let's see what happens when you do dumb things, everybody. We're going to learn a lesson about physics. The Fall of Delta Green group, it's a younger group. We've only been playing a little while, only a few years. So they do something, you know, uh, one of the players does something ridiculous. Sometimes there's a moment where you might try a backpedal or a, are you sure? But again, they're all good players. They've done this a long time. And a game of, you know, illegal or shady government conspiracy action, again, invites that sort of solo choice making that changes the narrative. And we've had that happen. One of the players decided that he was going to activate his possible screen memory as a GRU agent and rat the players out to the Soviets in Chicago. It's like, well, all right, that changes the complexion of the game. And it then sets up where every player begins an arc away from the group and that that becomes the narrative of that session. That's just or that um, uh, season, really. Uh, that's just what they've chosen to do. You know, just philosophically, maybe it's from running Call of Cthulhu so often and so much. If a player wants to kill themselves or injure the party, you know, that's just work I didn't have to do at some level. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I guess I'm blessed because my Scoobies generally don't break tone as much, although that does happen. They just, you know, throw the narrative into a new direction or or give it new uh, obstacles to overcome, which is, again, you know, part of my job in a way. So Right. So what we're looking at in, in this situation is a basically implied acceptance that right. everybody has an equal opportunity to bend the narrative in a way that others may not like. And the assumption is either, as you suggest, that A, that's in genre, or B, that's part of the exercise. It's part of what we're doing. Uh, that's why we play it as it lays. Mm -hmm. And that everything can be bent back into shape once it's bent out of shape. I think the real example, though, is when people at the table really genuinely object yeah. to a different change. So, so you're talking about a situation where everybody's cool with it, but what about everybody's not cool with it? Well, right? cool with it may be an exaggeration, but everybody accepts that it's part of the game. Right. But people are, are genuinely mad and upset and it's going right. to yeah. change their expectations just in the way that, you know, if you... Yeah, they all wanted to play cool samurai in, you know, five rings or something, and then one of the players does something dishonorable and now they're all hunted ronin and they're mad because they wanted to be cool court samurai, not hunted ronin. Right. And it's, so it's something that changes the game or they're all just emotionally invested in this, you know, keeping this prisoner alive mm -hmm. and this other person <laughs> wants to, to kill them and they don't want to be in the, in the story where that character is dead. Mm -hmm. So the next option, the more, the old school answer is, you know, have a contrivance suddenly appear and yank that possibility away. I hate contrivances. And I think lots of people hate contrivances because it it feels like you, the heavy hand of, of the GM. And so then you have to weigh, is this going to cheapen the sense of reality and everybody's sense of agency if they can only make good decisions that keep the narrative uh, where the group consensus is that it should be? Or are you able to come up with, because of course, you know, writers uh, in a, a passive narrative was certainly toy with the idea that you can creep in and kill the prisoner. And then suddenly there's something that happens that stops you from doing it, you know, creating false suspense and then 
relieving right. it. I yep. think that piece of advice comes from the old schooler sort of thought of never, you know, never break the fourth wall. It's much better to do something weird and annoying with the characters in the world than it is to stop and change gears and talk to everybody about this. And so this brings us to our third option, which is stop and change gears and talk to everybody about this and talk to everybody about it. Yeah. And, and I guess that that's clearly the, the newer school version of that. And in that it's not so much, are you sure you want to do this? Because that player is very sure they've wanted Mm -hmm. to do it. They've gone to probably great lengths in order to put themselves in a position where they can kill the prisoner and then, okay, group talk. So this is not, this is not exactly an X card situation. Although I suppose some people these days might indeed hold up an X card. Yeah, it depends on you know how they killed the prisoner and who the prisoner how is. How they all kinds killed of the things. prisoner, yeah. or or what other situation there is. But let's say this is something where nobody's going to pull an X card. You can still, yeah. I think, stop and go. Okay, it's so still the ruining the game card. Still the ruining, or we're going to be playing a different game from here on in. We're going to yeah. break premise and have everybody ask and say, put it up to a vote and say, well, do you want a contrivance to happen here? Or do you want to preserve everybody's agency, even though suddenly you're going to now be on the run uh, from the daimyo instead of uh, drinking tea with him at court? And I think that's the new school approach. And I think that helps you kind of with the contrivance in that you're stepping out of the playing the character space into the shared authorship space. And you can all sort of negotiate exactly what the level of the contrivance is and possibly even get the character moment that the player who wants to go in the other direction is looking for. They want to establish something. I'm definitely the person who would kill this prisoner without actually changing the subgenre of the game that you're in. Right. And, and a contrivance, depending on how the players accept it, it can be just like you wake up in the night, you know, did you kill the prisoner or was it a dream? You look at your hands, they're bloody, but the blood fades away. It's spectral blood. You know, that good old, this, it was all a dream. It's dumb in mimetic fiction, but it makes sense in a lot of supernatural fiction or uh, in a setting that is full of the spirit world. It was all a dream is literally how gods talk to you in, in you know, half those settings. So I, I feel like the contrivance doesn't necessarily have to be some ridiculous, clever three sides around the barn if the supernatural setting allows you to have had a vision from God that says, if you, you know, kill that prisoner, your friends will all pay the price and you'll be cursed and hunted. Are you sure? And then you've had the role-playing moment of, uh, at the moment I was, I was ready to kill him and everyone, you know, crowds around and says, well, there you go, samurai buddy. We understand your, your urge to do that. He's a terrible prisoner and we hate him too. That's why we're going to, you know, turn him over to the daimyo for his justice. And then, you know, you can still have some of that cathartic moment. I don't feel like the contrivance has to be, oh, the prisoner was always a doppelganger and vanishes when you stab them or, or whatever, unless again, you've, uh, foresightedly assaulted all manner of ridiculous clues that you can then call on at the time of need. And again, if the prisoner's life is so important to the campaign that they should be player proof, you probably should have salted some of those clues through that made it make it hard for them to be killed, at least on a uh, impulse basis or by one player acting alone. Right. Which assumes, of course, that you have correctly anticipated the way that the player wants to suddenly bend the narrative. Right. One very specific suggestion I would make is you can often, you know, if the group all decides that, no, we don't want it to go this way, you can have, okay, everybody make intelligence rules or whatever the equivalent is in whatever system you are and, or, you know, spend investigative points or, or what have you. And then say, so Janie, explain to me, uh, you've obviously are smart enough to anticipated that uh, a dev would attempt this. And so describe the steps that you took to surprise him uh, with his inability to go ahead and break the Chalani truce or kill the prisoner or blow up the uh, ring of power before you uh, can use it against uh, the space aliens or, you know, again, what have you. So that that puts the onus of exactly what the solution is onto the players. And it doesn't seem like a contrivance anymore because instead of some random thing happening, oh, it's a doppelganger. Instead, it's the players who don't want that thing to happen, their characters get to actually stop it. I think that's generally, you know, sort of one of our good advices that we use a lot is 
to the extent you possibly can. And I think that the sort of the ideal thing that you should maybe be shooting for is to ask the player that wanted to kill the guard, the prisoner, what stops you, you know, at the last minute, what stops you from killing the prisoner and let them, you know, figure it out and, and say a contrivance that they are, you know, comfortable with, you know, at the last minute I looked into his eyes and he reminded me of my you know brother or he disappeared like a ghost. I don't know why, or, you know, Janie found me and, and talked me out of it and let the player who's, agency you are most directly thwarting try and write as much of the thwarting as you possibly can so that you know the 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 player with the deepest scar from the reality shift gets to you know bandage it first right yes because it's it's not a contrivance if the players do it yeah. which sounds like a t-shirt <laughs> it does doesn't it <laughs> it does and therefore also the end of a segment Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time once more to put on our uh, top hats and uh, tighten our cummerbunds because we're striding proudly into the history hut. And this time around, we're striding at the behest of beloved patron backer Bob J. Kester, who asks, can you talk about the true meaning of the ridiculous-sounding 19th-century Yale imbroglio, the Conic Sections Rebellion? It's one of those historical events that only seems to make sense as a conspiracy cover-up. Or if you really hate memorizing geometry. Yeah, right. Um, as apparently everyone did in uh, the 1830s. So I, I still do. Yeah. I mean, I'm not fond of it. That's why I'm a humanities nerd. So in the early 19th century uh, at Yale, there was a mandatory geometry class for sophomores that you had to basically go through all of Euclid, do all the problems in Euclid and learn geometry so that you could be a proper gentleman in America for reasons. <laughs> yeah, the, being part of the ruling class, there was a cost. Yes. That cost was geometry. Geometry. One whole half year of geometry. It was never popular. The 1820s, and I feel like people don't really know this, the, the late 1820s, early 1830s are like the first 60s in America. All over the country, you're having the sort of social upheavals from the Great Awakening. The, the Second Great Awakening are going on. On campuses, you've got, you know, recreational laudanum use. You've got uh, people discovering romantic poetry and getting drifty about it. You've got transcendentalism happening. It's the 60s. People are wearing paisley pants because paisley is the new fabric that comes over from Scotland. Literally, the 60s are happening. So you can take this ridiculous sounding story and put it into the same sort of mind space of the kids not wanting to buckle under to the man. And in the fact that in this case, the kids are at Yale, which makes them also the man, 
Well, that was also true in the 60s, so there we are. So in 1825, 38 sophomores refused to memorize or recite the conic sections, and a conic section is uh, the fact that you can uh, transect a cone at any one of uh, three kind of ways, and you can make a hyperbola, a parabola, or an ellipse. And a circle is a special case of an ellipse, so don't come at me, circle people. And there's a great deal of uh, math and proofing that goes on in that, and it's all very complex diagrams. And uh, up until that era, you used to be able to just look in the book and point to the diagram and say, you know, like that, and people would let you off. Well, a new sheriff was in town, or the students were stroppy. Some people argue that it is the introduction of blackboards. That is the problem because you're expected to draw the conic section on the board instead of just cheat by looking in the book. Blackboards are a new technology. They debut in America at West Point in 1801. The historical evidence is scanty as to whether it's blackboards at fault in the 1825 incident. But like I say, 38 sophomores refused to memorize or recite conic sections, including future uh, leaders in the fields of theology and jurisprudence, but uh, their because parents... you don't need conic sections for theology or jurisprudence. You, don't, you need it for astronomy. <laughs> for astronomy. Well, which, which true. Which is specialized, and, most, and not how you get to rule the ruling class through astronomy. Yeah. Well, anyhow, they're suspended for their refusals, and their parents yell at them, and so they sign a letter of recantation saying... Oh, we were led astray. We will never do that again. Uh, we promise to be good and time passes. But in 1830, now it's definitely a blackboard situation and they're not allowed to look at their books at all. And it's during exams, not during lectures. And that, of course, much higher stakes. Uh, the son of Vice President John C. Calhoun leads 44 of his fellow sophomores in a rebellion against drawing conic sections because they don't like them. And Yale says, oh, we saw this movie. You're all expelled. And then all of you who are not the sons of vice presidents are blackballed. And we're going to tell every other college to not admit you because you're a problem child. And that happened. And so <laughs> half the class is thrown out in 1830. And that's it. And, and that's a serious sanction, right? That's that is a big sanction. You know, obviously, Andrew Calhoun got to go home and, and run his dad's cotton plantation, but not everyone had these options. So the professor of Sanskrit, Edward E. Salisbury, who was in the class of 1832, but did not rebel against conic sections. He Because if there's anything harder than conic sections, it's... Sanskrit. <laughs> Sanskrit. So he, uh, he rose to a position of power and influence at Yale. And in 1879 found all the still living members of the class of 1832 who had been thrown out. And he, uh, brought them all together and got them awarded an honorary master's degree. So right. sort and the of civil war is in between those two things, yeah, which right. is why you said surviving. Yeah, exactly. And for example, uh, Andrew Calhoun was not surviving. He died basically of apoplexy when the union troops came onto his plantation in 1865 died suddenly as they say in wikipedia talk uh, <laughs> died of rage so that was that was what happened at the story so it's tied off with a neat little bow it has a fun tech angle with the blackboards and then everyone sort of shuts up about it it seems to have given rise to a ritual called the burial of euclid that sophomores at yale did we know they did it from 1843 going forward to 1861 when Yale banned it, but it seems fun like they kind of, that's, that's the old fashioned kind of literally ruining fun. Exactly. Well, that's what, you know, the Dean used to do. They used to be there to ruin fun. It was structurally sound. So the, the, the burial of Euclid probably, I think, began, and uh, historians of Yale agree with me, as a response to this, you know, shutdown of the protest. They got their yayas out in a different way. And so they would have a torchlight parade. They would put a hot poker through Euclid and say, look, we've gotten through Euclid. And then they would hold the uh, hot poker up over their heads and say, look, I'm understanding Euclid because I'm standing under Euclid. That was funny in 1843 and if no time before or since. Well, they and were then, sophomores, so it had to be sophomoric. And then they would um, uh, stab the poker into the ground and they would all walk past Euclid and they say, look, we've passed Euclid. And then uh, they would do a, a song and they would present Latin odes 
about the death of Euclid. And then they would make fun of the townies who had gathered to watch because they didn't get to learn Euclid. And then they would get drunk and, uh, paw. You don't even get, get to learn this right. thing. We refuse to learn. They, they would get drunk and paw the area lady that they had hired to represent the spirit of geometry. It was, it was all good sophomoric fun, as you say. And it was happened in some woods off Prospect Street, some woods that according again to official Yale, historians were creepy woods and then uh the woods were so creepy that they were bulldozed and the Yale infirmary was built on the site in 1892 so that was the end the end of the burial of euclid so yale infirmary is built over god knows how many copies of euclid as well as perhaps a euclid uh, tulpa right. uh, summoned up by all of this shenaniganry so it's the spirit of applied science landing on top of and controlling this rebellion against theoretical mathematical science right uh, whereas at University of Chicago, no, no doubt Euclid's uh, tulpa is honored to this day. So conic sections go way back. They were essentially uh, introduced and refined by Apollonius of Perga in the 3rd to 2nd century uh, BC. And then Omar Khayyam of the Seljuk Empire uh, also worked on them in the 11th to 12th uh, centuries. And both of them are astronomers. That's why, you know, aside from being Yaleys, the reason to do these is uh, astronomy. They Neither of them has a huge background, though, of occult or elliptonic lore associated with them. So Omar Khayyam is associated with the Sufis, who are their, their own self kind of a, a wild mystical cult. But uh, he personally was just about, you know, getting him some and hanging out. Right. And writing poems that would then be lost. And then other poems were attributed to him, which exactly. is the best way to write. Yeah. So I think we have to look elsewhere to understand uh, what would be going on uh, below the surface here. Now, first of all, the first thing we think when we think cones, we think Yithians. Yeah. Now, the thing, though, is that we've talked about Yithians a lot lately on the show. <laughs> and as far like as I know... some sort of shadow out of time over this program. Exactly. Now, maybe I can't tell because, of course, they assume human form. But I can't see any Yithians who are supporting the show on Patreon. So I'm just going to say Yithians and, and let the rest of you figure that out. So the, the next thing to go to is what does a cone do in magic? And, of course, in Wiccan practice, there is a cone of power. And uh, what happens there is that uh, when you perform a ritual to raise energy, you all stand in a circle and the energy rises up to the midpoint between you all up in the air, which, of course, makes a magical cone. So the question here, then, is whether the uh, rebels were rejecting the magic of the cone or trying to free the cone from a mathematical constraint. From sectionary. And were they raising their own cone? Uh, with the burial of Euclid ritual when they're out in the creepity woods dancing and singing around. It sounds like the, the, that's an anti-cone effort if I ever heard one. So presumably yeah. they are fighting Wiccans, perhaps ahistorically, but nonetheless. Well, I mean, there were witches in New Haven, right, in uh, witch times in the 1690s. So you could absolutely say that the witches of New Haven uh, their, you know, descendants, their great, great granddaughters are still bapping around there being Wiccans and maybe they've turned good or maybe the witches of New Haven were good and were wrongly prosecuted by the Puritans of Connecticut. I think you could go either way with this story. I feel like any, uh, any faction that includes Andrew C. Calhoun is probably the bad guy faction, but that's just animus against his dad, I guess, on my part. But I, I think that you can definitely, you know, present uh, witches, if not necessarily Wiccan witches, but certainly uh, Wicca also reads its modern ritual practices back into the historical record. So they can't hardly be mad if we do it, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they, they wouldn't raise a cone of annoyance against us. No. So I think that's it. It's a battle between uh, the students and uh, the witches of New Haven and, uh, there's other elements of Weird Yale, but this story happened so early that uh, this prefigures all of those things. And so yeah, right. perhaps the battle over the mystic cone caused other things to happen later, like during the Civil War, uh, which is, you know, before the people get their honorary degrees back. So it's still part of this story. There's mm -hmm. a ghost light, uh, which is cited at Berkeley College for the first time and is still apparently cited occasionally to this day. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, who's uh, in his 30s and 40s and just beginning to build his transportation empire, 
uh, when the uh, students are rebelling. He eventually builds uh, Vanderbilt Hall and uh, makes sure that there's one dorm room which is always reserved for a Vanderbilt, should one need to occupy it. And his ghost occasionally shows up to visit, I guess, to check and make sure that everything's spick and span. Again, that's much later because Vanderbilt dies in 1877. And there's a lot of other interesting, cool, weird things from magical amulets in its antiquities collection to the Voynich manuscript. But these all come much later. The Voynich manuscript mm-hmm. comes in 69. So, But it could be that whatever the result of the cone battle was that it arrogated a certain reserve of um, mystical luminosity that then attracts the Voynich manuscript and other things. Yeah, or that they bring the Voynich manuscript because it contains the lore of the tubby witches of Europe, and they can use that to uh, battle uh, the ongoing witch cult that has been opposed to Yale since the 1820s and 30s. So it, it might be part of an ongoing legacy story. I feel like the ghost light is probably, you know, some sort of astral projection or something sent by Andrew Calhoun, still mad at Yale. So sending his uh, spirit energies over to haunt Yale during the Civil War and maybe try and uh, strike a blow for the hated Confederates. Who can say, right? Right. That would be immediately after his apoplexy, so that the timing works yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. So the, um, uh, obviously, you know, a story where you are, I think, having a deliberately non-Euclidean protest has its own Lovecraftian elements to it, but conic sections are so basic and elementary that I would, I would uh, be straining at a gnat to try and incorporate Lovecraft stuff in here. I think our, our witch idea is, is the strong one. Yes. And, and the witches are obviously the townies. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's part of an, an eternal struggle uh, that right. goes on throughout the ages. And if there's one thing we can't do in this podcast, it's resolve eternal struggles. Instead, we just move on to the next segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from underfunding and recitation of the corollaries alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Noel Warford, Pedro Garcia, Jan Zaleski, Alan Wilkins, and Dave Stecco. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the uh, vehicle that Ken gets into at the behest of his superiors at Time Incorporated to go back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around, Ken, you've, you unmutilated it very well. This is like one of your best veil outs. Uh, and I think you want to describe that at length first before we discuss yeah. what, what actually happened. Uh, so Ed Sizemore, estimable Patreon backer Ed Sizemore, asks, Whatever happened to Pope John the Twentieth? Is this the one time Ken needed to remove someone from the time stream? One time? Yeah. Ken, yeah, yeah. What, what's that's, up with this? That's the one time. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, as a Presbyterian, I don't really have a dog in this fight, but it never ceases to amuse me that uh, the Catholic Church can't even count. So our story begins with Pope John the 13th, who is 
the scion of a noble house, uh, the Crescenti. He's chosen as a compromise candidate between the imperial and anti-imperial factions that will become our Gelfs and Ghibellines, which we recall from previous episodes. Uh, John the 13th dies in 972. His brother overthrows the new Pope, Benedict the sixth, because he wanted his own Pope, Boniface the seventh. And uh, Boniface the seventh is a Crescenti and, or a Crescenti ally. And Boniface the seventh, you know, is set up as Pope. He's what we call an anti-Pope. Uh, which does not mean that if he touches a pope, they both are annihilated. In fact, what happens is... We, do we he, know that for sure, though? How often did the pope and the anti-pope touch? Well, we know that he touched Benedict the Sixth, and Benedict the Sixth was strangled. So that's not quite the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> only one of them was destroyed, not uh, Only one of them was annihilated. So then the emperor said, well, you can't go around strangling popes. That's, first of all, that's my job. Second of all, it makes me look bad. So the emperor runs him out of Rome. He flees to Byzantium with the entire papal treasury. And now they make a new pope, and they're going to name this new pope Benedict, too, just to show that nothing bad can happen. Uh, he's Benedict Seventh, and he reigns until 983. And Otto says, no more messing around. Make my imperial chancellor the pope so that I can run the popacy correct, and you people don't mess with it. So th they duly, because his soldiers are there, elect that guy, Pope John the Fourteenth, And then Otto II dies, and Otto III is a baby boy who does not have the energy to invade Italy all the time. So guess who comes roaring back? That's right, our buddy Boniface Seventh. He comes back in 984 with the help of his buddies, the Crescenti. And once more, Robin, you'll be so excited. He touches a Pope and that Pope dies. And that Pope <laughs> is John the 14th. And he dies basically four months after the return of Boniface the seventh. And then Boniface, uh, hilariously dies, quote, suddenly in 985. And the re, and the way that Rome finds this out Was this is that apoplexy? His, his naked body is found dangling from the statue of Marcus Arena. Aurelius, which I mean, that's not symbolic of anything. That's he tripped. well, they, yeah, he was, you know, it could have happened to anybody. And so the, the citizens of Rome drag his body through the streets. Cause you know, how often do you get to do that to a Pope, even an anti-Pope? And so the, the record keepers who are perhaps understandably keeping their heads down during all this wrote only the dodgiest little bit into the official book of Popes, the Liber Pontificalis. And they're like, um, this guy was Pope, and then this guy was Pope, and then this. And so the record winds up reading John, Pope, eight months, John, Pope, four months, meaning John the 14th is Pope for eight months and then imprisoned for four months, but no one remembers the imprisoned part. So it is something uh, you want to elide. Yeah, you don't want to set it in the record that you can just do that to popes. And so there's sort of a, a bouncing around through the popes and all the popes take, you know, the, the number after 14 and Pedro Julião, who is Portuguese and a brilliant doctor and scientist, becomes Pope John in 1276. And he's like, we've got a double pope. I should be Pope John the 21st because there's been 20 Johns. Now, this is wrong. For two reasons. One, you'll remember that we double counted John the 14th. Second, John the 16th was another anti-pope, but the church just left him in the list for some dumb reason. And, uh, you'll be glad to know that Pope John the 21st, Pedro Julial, was killed when his ceiling of his laboratory fell in on him. I just ran across that. That seemed like too good to miss. So anyway, Pope John the 21st killed by a falling ceiling. This may come back. So you'd expect that you just have to wait for another John, possibly from an era with uh, actual historical record keeping to, you know, unscrew it by taking the correct John number and renumbering everyone. But no, John the 23rd, in addition to getting ready to blow up the church with Vatican II, also says in his uh, accession that he succeeds 22 Johns of indisputable legitimacy. So... John the 23rd, by taking that name, has unjohned a different anti-pope John, but has now firmly johned the anti-pope John the 16th. So there were at best 20 Johns of indisputable legitimacy. John the 23rd should have been the John the 21st. So in a way, we're missing John the 20th. Absolutely. That's nobody's regnal name, but it's also, we've got a, a John the 21st in that mix that needs to be taken out. 
So we've got one Pope too few and one Pope too many. And somehow that winds up with the John count being too off. Right. And this is how you left it. This is, this, this, this is was my veil after you fixed yeah. it. Right. So now we get to the, the alternate world time tremble part of, of this. And I got to say, great work with all of the detail of repeated mistakes and errors and the sort of eyes glazing detail level of this may be your finest veil out uh, ever. And uh, again, special well, props. It's easier to do a veil out when the entire historical record is one line. <laughs> yes. Well, but you know, it, it's a line that reverberates. Right. Yeah. yeah. So don't argue when I'm praising your work. I should. But what actually happened to Pope John the 20th? Well, you remember I uh, alluded to Pope John the alleged 21st, who was the actual Pope John the 20th, coming in and uh, being a, a scientist and medico. Well, in the timeline where he stayed John the 20th, he discovered what he thought was a great specific against illness. Unfortunately, what he discovered was a way to uh, basically, what's the word, titrate, I guess is the word I want, but to, you know, I didn't read the book, it was in Latin, but uh, to titrate viruses out of a, uh, a medium. So it's, it's worse than bacteria. He figured out how using medieval technology to make viruses or to uh, concentrate them. And that led to a period of bacteriological warfare that made the Black Death look like a summer cold. So um, it was more important to me than to knock the ceiling in on him. And the way that I could tell which documents were from that history is they all said, this was discovered by Pope John the 20th, so therefore it's super holy and you can't ban it. And so it was important to take John the 20th completely out of the record so that anytime I saw one of those little, you know, this is what John the 20th says about bottling up rat blood and shaking it hard. It's like, nope, can't do it. Take that book out. Take that guy out. We just have to undo a medieval bacteriological warfare or virological warfare, even worse than bacteriological warfare. So uh, that was what I did. That was why I did it. That's why uh, the Pope orders a laboratory specially built, and not even a year later, it mysteriously collapses on him. Was it the hand of God? Was it a couple of pounds of thermite? Who can say? Right. And and only, you know, in cases like this, where there are hundreds of thousands of lives, possibly hundreds millions of millions of lives, of lives. Stake, does the thermite get issued to you by Time Incorporated? Right. Although, you know, in fairness, Pedro Giuliano also mixed up a mean batch of thermite. He was quite a guy. <laughs> Well, you also probably didn't want thermite at that time either. Yeah, no. They, frankly, he needed a ceiling to fall on him, and the sooner the better. <laughs> right. Uh, so if you want a grim, dark universe version of this uh, this period in history, that's where you, you go to, the, the timeline that you have, have repaired. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you don't want that because, like I say, the Black Death, bad enough. Don't get it on you, kids. Uh, well, on, on that cautionary note, I think it's time for us to uh, wrap this segment. And uncharacteristically... After Ken's time machine, for spoiler avoidance reasons, we have another segment. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. 
ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Johannes Lai and the sea. The child. A traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. The whir of the projector, the crunch of popcorn, and whatever that is on the floor between our feet welcomes us once more to the center seats of the Cinema Hut, where we sit down to respond to a plaintive screed by beloved Patreon backer Derek McMullen, who asks, What went wrong with Eternals? I have seen it twice now, says Derek, and while I enjoy it, I get the feeling that the ideas are too big for the movie. Is there a way to do both a big idea movie like Arrival and a superhero film as the same film? Robin, um, I don't want to push back too much on Derek McMullen. If he enjoyed Eternals, good for him. I do want to, in defense of Arrival, say Ancient Aliens is not the same thing as Arrival. <laughs> and the big ideas that are present or want to be present in Eternals, I feel are more the sort of cautionary thoughts about the morality of intervention that are common to most good superhero films. Certainly all of your Superman films touch on it. So with that caveat, what went wrong with Eternals, Robin? Right. Well, I, th I think we're all, you and I and Derek are all in broad agreement, though, that Eternals has some interesting, compelling elements in a film that ultimately doesn't work. Ultimately crashes to the ground. Well, that assumes it gets off the ground. <laughs> yeah, and right. so I think our main assignment here is to sort of get under the hood and analyze exactly uh, why that would be. And uh, just to repeat, if you haven't seen Eternals yet and intend to, uh, we may spoiler it, which is why we put this segment at the uh, end of the episode. But without spoilers, I would say the main issue is the issue that bedevils a lot of Marvel movies times 100 and before we even get to that, I'll also say that if a movie that is based on 70s Jack Kirby is <laughs> stilted and weird, uh, it is accurately replicating the source material. Right. It is honoring Jack Kirby in that way. Yes, uh, because this is Jack without working without Stanley. And so the weird grotesquery is sort of at, at the uh, rising up of it and also the the odd characterization and Stan Lee's contribution was always to bring these crazy cosmic visions down to earth and make them accessible and give the characters strong character hooks. But the main thing is just how much exposition the first entry in a new sub-series of the great series known as the MCU requires. And here, Eternals is about introducing an entire unfamiliar mythology a great big cast of characters and all of human development before it finally gets the story going. And it has 50 minutes of exposition setting up the mythology, another 20 minutes upending that mythology and telling you everything you just learned is wrong and that the Celestials are Mr. Johnson. And then it actually poses the actual real narrative question of the whole rest of the film. And that's a thing that is uh, I think, impossible to recover from just in terms of uh, structural balance. Uh, and there are other minor things that we might get to, but it's like 70 minutes of exposition at the beginning is just too much in any case. And any idea that requires 70 minutes to set up, you're just not going to get past that. And so once it gets started, all that time into the actual running time of the film, there are things that are interesting about it, but... By that time, it, it has failed to launch. And the problem, I think, also is that once you've done all that setup, you need a more interesting reveal than our, our boss who made us is, oh, it was a, a betrayal, right? It was, we were, we were tricked. It's like that, that doesn't even work in a two hour spy movie when you learn that the CIA was, was being duplicitous. It certainly doesn't work in a world where we are expected to believe that the celestials or the eternals are like gods and that their whole job is to know things and, and see the future and do all this stuff. And then, oh, they're not only terrible at that, which they spend an inordinate amount of time whining about, they also aren't very good at their job of fighting deviants, 
And thirdly, that the whole thing that we are pretending to care about, the deviant fighting bit, is just a, a shuck. And so not only do you have this immense leaden amount of exposition, you then undercut every part of it throughout. And only very rarely and very individually do character moments matter. And uh, when those character moments are uh, laying on a, a gifted actor like Angelina Jolie, they land a bit or uh, Ma Dong Sek, who plays Gilgamesh, uh, they land when they are rested on a adequate comedian like Kumail Nanjani, they're all right. And when they're landing on, you know, blocks of attractive wood like Gemma Chan and Richard Madden, they don't do anything. And so when you've got a cast of, you know, what is it, a dozen Eternals, the, the odds are that not all of them are going to operate correctly. And, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy felt overstuffed and it had half that that main cast. It, it's just a yeah, it, it's it just a, has too many characters, the characters uh, who are there mostly don't have recognizable hooks. The viewpoint character in particular, Cersei played by uh, Gemma Chan. I don't know how to evaluate Gemma Chan's <laughs> acting because she has nothing to play. Yeah, uh, right, yeah. Similarly, Richard Madden is, his character is holding a secret for three quarters of the length of the film. And so you never actually see his character. So I can't, I don't feel like I've fairly seen <laughs> what he could do with a... This a is true. Where, although I do have to say that Chloe Zhao, and I was super stoked when I heard that she was doing a Marvel movie, her ability to coax amazing performances out of non-actors playing versions of themselves does not seem to translate to sort of middle gear Hollywood actors. At least or to people playing basically monodimensional Marvel monodimensional characters. Monodimensional comic book characters saying comic book things. Mm -hmm. And certainly Nomadland, the performances by Francis McDormand and David Strathairn are also as amazing as the non-actor performances. But again, that's Francis McDormand. And, <laughs> and David if Strathairn. She, if yeah. she ever agreed to be in a Marvel movie, she would be weirdly effective no matter what they gave her. Right. Yeah. So there, there's that sort of creeping in at the side. And, and also I think the film is straining against the Marvel aesthetic in that, you know, the, the most of the film looks like a gorgeous Chloe Zhao film with this amazing photography of the natural environment. But whenever a CGI effect shows up, it turns back into regular, recent, dark, gloomy, save money on the CGI budget, Marvel uh, color grading, in which it's impossible to see what's going on. And, uh, and that doesn't help either. The, the, there is the cool sort of modern Kirby-esque version of the light powers that they blasted each other. Uh, that's uh, pretty cool, but that's getting us pretty far apart from the question of whether mm -hmm. uh, there is a big idea in this film or the, and film the big is giant hand at the end is, is strong yeah. Kirby visuals. I like that. But again, the big giant hand kind of doesn't do much. It's, it's, it's like, it could be a matte painting. They could have made that movie in 1968 and, or, or 78. And, uh, it'd be a matte painting and it would have had basically the same effect because it's not present in any of the, of the action sequences. And again, you know, making a movie based on seventies Kirby and not honoring the real genius of Kirby, which is the starkly inconceivable surreal visuals is to do more violence than to make Eternals make sense, which I feel like Kirby wouldn't mind that as much, but he would be much angrier if Eternals is dull and meaningless, right? Right. And that's sort of what it winds up being, because the fight with the Deviants is the same fight with CGI monsters we've seen a million times. We're not at all invested in it. And to the and extent we are... it's a side fight. It's not the main... Yeah. There's no stakes to that at all. And to the extent we are, we then learn that it was a pointless fight. And it's like, well... You got me there, movie. Now I really don't care who you fight. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it just, it makes a lot of, I think, very bad and flat choices on the scripting, even before you get to the part where Chloe Zhao is forced to film it in the bottom of the Marvel peanut butter jar ugliness that she is a lot of those sequences. And I'm not going to say Eternals was ever going to be the easiest comic book to script into something. But I will say that your analysis of the of the fact that you spend basically two thirds of the movie setting up the wrong story, it's not a survivable design flaw, really. Right. And the most interesting idea in it is the conflict that Camille Nanjiani's character Kingo has at, at the end, where it's like, 
Well, I think the Celestials should get to destroy the Earth and create way more life. That's just the utilitarian answer. But I also mm -hmm. don't feel I want to fight over it. And so I'm going to wave goodbye and not appear yeah. in the end of the movie. That's yeah. actually the super interesting a left field choice. And a film that was designed around that from the outset that was that focused that made his character the lead character or gave that conflict to Gemma Chan if you want to keep her as the lead if you were able to pose that question right from the very beginning and reveal the exposition that's needed along the way by her like investigating and you know having her figure out that something weird is going on and then she pieces it together through the whole movie and then at the end that's the conflict I'm not sure that is pullable offable, but I think would have been preferable to sort of having that be a throwaway thing that just sort of registers as a, well, that's contrary to genre. Okay, the fight's starting. And I feel like they they, they wind up wasting things like Angelina Jolie's character, Thena's memory sickness and stuff. Some of that could have been turned into symptoms of the real story clues to be unraveled by you know let's pretend cersei or whoever and then rather than have that be basically not even a b plot a c plot i i feel like you could have you know centered the actually interesting human story a little more in the mystery and that would have paid off a bit more as well right and that you know the you know the mysterious death of of gilgamesh well, he's killed by one of those monsters, but it, it's more interesting if he's killed by, you know, um, Icarus, right? Right. And I guess to move back to the, the second part of the question, and the reason we have this segment is, it, is this possible to do? And I think it would be possible to do a superhero movie with a big philosophical idea at the core if you pose the question right at the beginning. Is that all strong narrative in its opening scene, uh, sometimes subliminally, sometimes overtly, often in between those two things, creates a question in the mind of the audience that orients the audience in the narrative so they know what to hope happens and they know what to fear could possibly happen. And those are the uh, that gives you the orientation between the up and down beats that make narrative engaging. And this, as I said before, doesn't pose that question until about the 70-minute mark. <laughs> and I think if you did have a superhero movie with big ideas where you're able to pose the question right away and do whatever you need to after that, that's the solution to that story. Marvel movies quite often have a problem of being two stories, being an origin story, and then a villain story. And this has that in spades because it's the origin of the entire universe yeah. and 12 characters. And it's, it's just a, a, an imbalance that is just too great to bear. So, you know, props to wanting to do a big ensemble film where the ensemble fights each other, but it's just too much set up to get there. Right. And and it's very hard to get, just in terms of uh, practicality, to get audience sympathy for all these characters that you barely see and barely know, and in many cases are not particularly compelling on screen. You know, it's hard to give everyone a story moment without, again, dragging the length of the movie out forever. And forget the other 11. I just can't, <laughs> yeah. still can't answer the question of what did I want to happen for Cersei? Yeah. And did you want her to date uh, Kit Harrington? I guess, is the question that we were left asking ourselves for three hours. Right. Well, it turns out she was dating another upcoming movie. That's, yeah, right. That sort of long-distance relationship doesn't work in the Marvel Universe. No, no, it doesn't. Um, I guess, you know, when we talk about the the big ideas and the questions you have to sort of mention, I don't think we are going to get into analyzing Zack Snyder's Superman and Batman versus Superman movies or Justice League, which is more of the payoff of the questions asked in those two movies. Obviously, he does everything you say you should do. And I feel like whether or not it worked is is still the jury is is either out or is uh, hung. We're not going to get an answer to that in this segment, but it, it has been tried and it's been tried with Brio and an enormous budget. And even then, it doesn't always satisfy everybody, including me, who am a giant old uh, Justice League stan, but uh, cannot necessarily say, look over here at who did it right, because it really kind of yeah. wasn't done right. Well, having the basic framework for the story is just problem one in, <laughs> in the massive job of directing one of these giant movies. And it's, it's a, you know, really a, a miracle that any of them are good. Yeah. And I, and I guess, um, really sort of the the person that did this sort of story best and I underline the best with air quotes and 
italics and everything. I guess you could look at Browning's first Thor movie, which has some of the same vibe of, oh, there's this whole universe you didn't even know. We have to introduce all these characters, set up this dynamic in Asgard, and then overturn it two-thirds of the way through the film. And, I mean, he had the advantage of the love interest being Natalie Portman, so you're automatically invested and interested in a way that you're not with Kit Harington. But still, that movie sort of stumbles and slams into walls a great deal. And he wound up, I think, in many ways with a stronger cast to help his film over some of the rougher spots because, you know, Thor is delightful. Chris Hemsworth is delightful. We already praised Natalie Portman. And then uh, in Tom Hiddleston's Loki, they found a villain that you just can't not want to watch on screen. So I feel like if you look at Thor as the best case, you're still, you know, right around that, you know, Batman versus Superman extended edition. Well, it, it's all right, but it, right. It, it it doesn't achieve liftoff in the way that Winter Soldier or the first Spider-Man movie did, right? Right. And, and the real secret, uh, apparently, in, a Mar- in Marvel movies is to have had your character introduced in a previous film. <laughs> exactly. So that's why the Spider-Man is good. That's why Black Panther is good, because they don't need that initial giant chunk of exposition that isn't the actual movie and mm-hmm. isn't posing the actual question. And I think I've now reiterated that point three or four times, uh, which, which means it's which time means to... that um, uh, nine more times than it can be a Marvel movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, instead, I think it's going to be the end of this episode, but we'll have another one coming up a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Astphagelm. Dark Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop space giants from rebooting the planet by joining such backers as... Jack Gulick. Michael Curtis. Ryan Mannix. Scott Jones. And Scott Stefanski. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin Murray at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Ingest the Eldritch Cappuccino foam with our latest design. If it's coffee, I'll drink it. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.